everyone and welcome to Impressionable. This is the podcast in which we try and figure out the ways in which we've been influenced by the world and talk about the legacies that we'd like to leave behind. I'm your host, Becky Lee. Thank you so much for being here. Today's episode is one that I was so excited to record. You don't understand how excited I was. It's actually a bit embarrassing. It's with the incredible Jessica Dufino. I'm going to let the episode do the talking, but as always, please rate, review, and subscribe, and share with friends, because it makes me really happy. Okay, over to Jessica. Hi, thank you so much for having me. How are you doing? I'm doing pretty great. I've had a lovely day so far. How are you doing? I'm good, thanks. Yeah, you look so summery. It's like not quite there yet in the UK, but you're looking fabulous. Oh, thank you. Yeah, I feel fabulous. I've been out in the sun all day. Well, I could tell you, sun-kissed. Um, but for those that don't know who you are, could you maybe like give a little intro as to what you get up to? Sure. So my name is Jessica Defino. I'm a reporter in the beauty industry, um, or sometimes I call myself a beauty culture critic. Um, because I think my work is pretty different from most reporters in the industry. I'm not um, interested in helping the industry necessarily. I'm not interested in selling products or being like, this ingredient is great for your skin. I'm really interested in dissecting beauty culture and the ways that it affects us as people. So I like to say like my work has is like an anti-product, but pro people. Like I'm way more interested in how beauty affects people than, you know, beauty products. Yeah. It's so interesting. I found your sub sack. It was actually recommended to me by a friend. Um, and I've been a fan ever since, but we'll go into all of that. Um, because the first question I ask everyone is what has something that's made an impression on you recently? I, was reading a book on the beach this morning and the book isn't out yet. It's an advanced copy. I'm really excited about it. It's called The Ugly History of Beautiful Things and it's by a writer named Katie Kelleher. And the whole book is just essays on different things that are, you know, considered beautiful and sort of the darker history behind them. So very up my alley. But she's writing a chapter about makeup and she opens it with this visual of her as a teen using a safety pin to um, separate her eyelashes after putting mascara on. And I don't know if you did that, but I did that as a teen too. And it was like... Such, yes, I did that all the time. It was such a like visceral memory for me, like something that I had just blocked out. And it just really, um, yeah, left this impression on me of like, wow, like what stupid and dangerous things we do in the name of looking, you know, quote unquote, better sometimes. Like now as an adult, I look back on that and I'm just like, as a 15 year old, I should not have had a safety pin so near to my precious eyeball, but I did every day so that my lashes would look thicker, you know? So yeah, I've been thinking about that all morning. I'm going to be thinking about that all night. So that's, that's crazy. Um, and I guess kind of like links to where, you know, to what you get up to. And I'm just really interested on how you got started, you know, writing about beauty. Did it always come from like a people first place? No, definitely not. I have kind of done a complete 180 from where I started. Um, So I guess to give a little bit of background, I've always been like a very beauty obsessed person. I did beauty pageants when I was really young, like five, six years old, just like local things in New Jersey. 
I did community theater from when I was a kid up until when I was a teenager and makeup was a huge part of that. You know, I had like my little caboodle full of stage makeup and it was like a big part of becoming a character and being ready to be on stage and being ready to be looked at. And I think I took those things into my everyday life as well. So I was very obsessed with all sorts of products, skincare products, makeup products, hair care, perfume, um, all of it. probably an unhealthy amount. Um, But I got my start in the beauty industry actually as an editor for the Kardashian-Jenner apps in 2015. And I had been in the celebrity space for a little bit before that, um, but never quite so close to beauty Mm -hmm. specifically. So that job really kind of gave me a behind the scenes look at how beauty standards are manufactured and mass produced and sold to customers. And sort of like the manipulation that goes into that, the sales tactics that go into that. And it left, you know, a really bad taste in my mouth. There were a bunch of things that that happened at that job. And then, you know, further on in my career in the beauty industry that just made me eventually say, I have to kind of get out of this bubble and start pushing back on the industry and exposing some of this and letting consumers know, like, really what is going on in the industry and how it Mm -hmm. is not serving us. Mm -hmm. And yeah, I I eventually started after, you know, writing for, you know, the New York times and Allure and Harper's Bar and Vogue and all of that. I eventually started my own newsletter called the unpublishable, which is mainly where I, I write now. Yeah. Was, you know, I was thinking about when you were saying about you work for the Kardashian Jenners, that's like the peak of where, almost beauty standards originates. You know, so many things are now kind of passed down through beauty culture starts there. Was there anything that you worked on that you were like, oh my God, what is this going to do? I don't know that I knew it in the moment. There are things that I look back on and say, oh my God, I hate that I was a part of that because I can see, you know, the downstream consequences and what it's kickstarted. I think the most interesting thing that I've learned since leaving the apps and really researching beauty culture is that like what the Kardashian Jenners are doing is nothing new. They didn't start all of this. It's not just them that's to blame for beauty standards. Like these things have been circulating in the culture for like millennia they've just happened to like hit the mainstream at a time when technology is just um accelerating at like an incredible rate so like the uh, the mass reach and the mass appeal and the ability to start all of these brands that capitalize on you know the platform that the media has really given them and you know to be honest consumers have really given them like we pay them a lot of attention um they've been able to like really capitalize on these sort of very old techniques. So that's sort of the first thing that comes to mind now looking back on it. But I mean, I, I, I think the most extreme things to me when I think back to some of the app content that I helped create was just like the, the gap between what we were selling to customers and how that standard was being constructed. So like, for instance, I remember there was a piece on Chloe's app where it talked about how to fake a nose job with contouring. And we linked to bronzers and highlighters and techniques to make your nose look smaller. Like meanwhile, Chloe has an actual like surgical nose job. So it's like the products we're selling are never going to, you know, 
they're never going to get anyone closer to the intended result, right? And same with Kim. There was a piece on her app of like how to look Photoshopped with only makeup. Meanwhile, the app had a Photoshop artist on the team to actually Photoshop the images, even with the, you know, quote unquote, Photoshopped makeup on them. So there was just like this huge disparity and it just, you know, it feels, just feels sad to me. All of it feels very sad now. Yeah, no, 100%. And, you know, something that you said that was so interesting, especially about the noses, is kind of like where these be- these um, beauty standards originate from. Like, I feel like noses is something that comes up quite a lot, especially because it's like a tiny nose. It's like heralded as like beauty standards. So just as a broader question, where from your research have you found that all these beauty standards originate from? Uh, there's so much. I mean, I think basically you can trace any beauty standard back to like one or all four of like what I have, have, you know, found out are like the four main sources of all beauty standards. And that's um, patriarchy, white supremacy, colonialism, and capitalism. And from those four things stem every other type of discrimination. So racism, colorism, ableism, um, sizeism, sexism, all of those things, ageism, I don't know if I said that one already. Um, But yeah, basically beauty standards are the manifestations of systems of oppression. They're the physical manifestations of these sort of broader systems of oppression. Um, And so, I mean, we can trace back smaller noses to, you know, quite a few of those. Um, There's, there's white supremacy for sure. And just like the general Eurocentric beauty ideal of having this sort of like tiny pert ski jump nose. Um, there's, you know, uh, anti-Semitism in there as well. Um, because this, this sort of image of like what the typical Jewish person looked like was constructed. This was also Mm -hmm. false. You know, Jewish people look all types of ways. There's not like one feature in particular that we can say like, oh, that's a Jewish feature. That's a false construct. But similarly, the backlash against this construct of the big nose is also anti-Semitic. So like there are so many layers to peel back when it comes to the origins of certain beauty standards. Um, And yeah, with that one in particular, there are a lot of also, you know, classism. The other Mm -hmm. thing about like smaller noses is that especially in today's society, like you can kind of tell when someone's had a nose job, I think, or maybe just because it's my job and I look at it, I can tell. And it's this very subtle wealth signaling. It is signaling I have funneled money into my face. I have extra money to put into how I look. Like wealth is sort of the ultimate beauty standard today, I think. Um, and that's that's part of like this small surgically enhanced nose as well. No, oh, 100%. And there's a joke that goes around and it's like, you're not ugly, you're just poor. And I'm just like, that's yes. a funny joke, but it's true. It's not a joke. That's like pretty much, <laughs> that's pretty much the beauty industry in a nutshell. <laughs> yeah, exactly. And, you know, it's it's hard though, because when you say all these things, I wholeheartedly agree, but there's still a pull to adhere. There's still a pull to contour, to look a certain way. And I think often that's maybe because it's like beauty's power. So how do you kind of like, how do you navigate that? Yeah. I mean, I think, so just to kind of explain that, like, yes, beauty is power. And I think a lot of the reason that we're drawn to what I'll call standardized beauty or industrialized beauty is 
because it is so closely associated with power and beauty culture and the beauty industry in particular have really done a masterful job at equating this very specific type of beauty with um, not only power, but with love, acceptance, community, success, um, all sorts of things that are just natural human things to want. So it's like not necessarily bad that we're drawn towards beauty. I think what is helpful is to ask yourself, like, what am I really drawn to in this scenario? Like, what do I think this will get me? Because very often our like beauty behaviors are not purely because we just love something from a very, you know, unadulterated aesthetic standpoint. We love or want the thing that it's associated with. So for me, it's been very helpful to just sort of ask myself, like, what do I think adhering to this particular beauty standard will get me? Is there really any evidence to show that it will get me those things? Um, And is there another way that I can work toward this goal? Like if I want to become beautiful because I want, you know, love in my life, like clearly beauty is not the only path to that. Um, And we know that's true because by definition, by, by beauty culture's definition, the majority of people in the world are average or ugly and lots of people have love, (laughs) you know, this is not like the sole path to love. So that has been helpful. The other thing that's helpful to me is um, like really digging into the history of any particular beauty trend or beauty standard and digging back far enough to see where it comes from. And very often it will have stemmed from a system of oppression and still be part of that system of oppression that I don't want to participate in particularly. I think a really easy example is anything that's like anti-aging or glorifying youth. That's just, a, you know, a physical outgrowth of ageism. And I don't want to participate in creating an even more ageist society. It's against my best interests as an aging woman, <laughs> as, you know, another word for aging is living as somebody who is alive perpetuating ageism in any way is like really not going to help me long term. And so that's like an easy thing for me now to opt out of because I know where it stems from. I know what it's doing to me and other people and I just don't want a part of it. I completely, I wholeheartedly agree with you on the ageism stuff, but like youth is often synonymous with beauty or like there's so much that's upheld. That's like, even like it kind of like becomes weird when it's like they want their women to be like completely shaven and all these like, or like that's the idea. And I'm like, what woman like doesn't have hair? <laughs> mm-hmm. Right. I mean, you bring up a really good point and that is something that I'm like particularly concerned about right now. And something that I'm diving deeper into in my current work is just sort of the standard of beauty today is, is inhuman mm-hmm. and it's dehumanizing And all of the things that we're expected to be, you know, ageless, hairless, these don't exist. These are not human qualities. We're seeking to be something else. And that's why it's so unfulfilling and why it takes Mm -hmm. so much effort to adhere to. And I, it's, it has been a pretty radical shift for me to start thinking of these things not as, you know, beauty standards that I want to attain, but but goals that go against my very being. This is an inhuman goal. Trying to adhere to it is dehumanizing and defining beauty in this very narrow way uh, is like crushing, I think, to the human spirit. 
No, 100%. And you know what? It's such a gold mine to people setting these. I mean, not this one person setting these standards, but if there's something completely unachievable, like anti-aging, you're never going to be able to achieve that. So people are always going to keep like spending money to try. Yes. Yes. That's a perfect example of um, how capitalism really has shaped the modern Western beauty standard. Like these things are not considered beautiful because they're beautiful. They're considered beautiful, you know, fake beautiful because they're profitable. Yeah. When you buy into this standard, you are a consumer for life now because there's no point at which you can say, I've anti-aged, I've done it, I'm done with the products. Like there is no conceivable end to a lot of these standards. They require constant product intervention. They require the constant like reshaping of your body with things that you buy. Um, and that's, you know, obviously very appealing to a capitalist economy, less appealing to an actual living human person. Yeah. What do you say about the discourse? It's kind of like, oh, she's aged so gracefully. Like, this is what aging should look like. Yeah. I mean, that's just that is the same old beauty standard dressed up in nicer sounding <laughs> language. Um, if aging gracefully were just aging it would just we would just call it aging mm -hmm. aging gracefully is is really this way that we are encouraging beauty work so to like age gracefully the way that like the media and the culture has defined aging gracefully actually requires a lot of effort and like not very you know quote unquote graceful effort either like a lot of it requires you know product intervention procedure intervention surgeries hair dye, all, you know, all sorts of, you know, lasers and needles and facials and just constant upkeep. It's work. Mm -hmm. It's called beauty work. It's aesthetic labor. And I think this idea of aging gracefully really shows the parallels between beauty work and other types of traditionally um, feminine forms of work, housework, care work. In all three cases, housework, care work, beauty work, women are expected to do these duties and expected to make it seem as if it is natural and inherent and requires nothing of us because this is our God-given role as women. Um, and it's just, it's not true. And I think this construct of aging gracefully is very convenient for beauty culture and all of the forces that it supports, you know, which are patriarchy, white supremacy, colonialism, capitalism, all of these oppressive forces. It's very convenient for us to be conditioned to believe that aging gracefully is the way to go because one, that inspires a ton of aesthetic labor and two, inspires even more labor to conceal the fact that we are doing this labor. I think like no makeup makeup is a great example of that, where it's like you're doing the labor of buying the products, applying the products, and then you're doing more labor to make it seem as if you've done nothing at all. Like this is a, a textbook way to keep women primarily consuming and consumed by beauty. And to what end? Like the resources that that takes from us, our time, our money, our attention, our effort, our energy, these are finite resources. We don't have an infinite amount to go around. And so the more we spend on beauty, the less we are spending on bettering the world 
or betting bettering ourselves or just like having you know fun in other ways (laughs) oh sorry (laughs) you got me going no no you're so right I'm lapping it all up I promise you I'm like preach but you know something that you just said then again about living is that you talk about aging is like not aging but exposure and I feel like often you're kind of discouraged like don't eat too much or don't expose yourself to this too much or don't lift like it is kind of like don't live too much yes so (laughs) I I'm like where do I go because there's so many directions I could take this in but just from a practical level I think it is helpful for people who are interested in this to know that like studies have shown about 85% of what we are conditioned to believe are signs of aging are actually just signs of exposure. So that's exposure to sunlight, exposure to pollution, exposure to like stress in the environment and in ourselves, um, exposure, a big one to beauty products that wear away our skin's inherent defenses, um, exposure to, you know, certain ingredients Um, in our products, in our food system, all of this stuff um, causes what we have come to call aging. I think it's very convenient for us to, it's very convenient for beauty culture to to categorize exposure as aging because it flips the responsibility from a culture that is exposing us to a bunch of bullshit that shouldn't be happening right now in terms of like the destruction of the planet and the pollution that it's causing and the wearing away of the ozone layer and the corruption in our food system and the corruption in the beauty system. It flips the script so that we don't blame that. We blame ourselves for aging, Mm -hmm. for our bodies. And it turns the focus to the individual. You have to fix your own body when really the signs of aging are from these other things. And some of those things like are you know, our um, negative outcomes of of a government that has not prioritized the planet and the people. And some of that exposure just like happens. Like we're people, we're living. This is kind of what happens. We're exposed to the sun. We're exposed to pollution. It's not our individual fault. Like these are just kind of things that come with the territory of being a real live human being. And it's not like we have to erase it, especially not on the aesthetic level. Like, sure, maybe fix some of the like root cause issues, but like erasing the aesthetic of that exposure is just, it doesn't help anybody, you know? And um, yeah, yeah. Yeah. I lost my train of thought a little bit, but <laughs> that's kind of the general gist. Yeah, it's interesting. I think it probably projected into this conversation a bit, but I've been thinking a lot about like alienation and especially in the workplace and how people are so, dis- you know, att- not attached to their jobs anymore. I don't see the outcome of it. I'm like, now that I'm talking to you, I'm like, is that just happening with our bodies? Are we just so alienated from our bodies or like people that put on makeup every day is like autopilot. Like you have to perform a ritual before you even leave the door right yes I think I think a lot of it is I mean sometimes I even struggle writing about beauty because I'm like this thing has already been written about to death in other areas of life and like I think it's I think it's helpful to sometimes note that like all of these things hustle culture productivity culture they come with an aesthetic Mm. you know like 
And oftentimes beauty is just an outgrowth of these other systems that we're like sometimes more easily able to pinpoint and say like, oh, that's a problem. But like hustle culture, productivity culture, like work culture in the Western world at large is completely dehumanizing. It seeks to make man into machine. It places demands on our, you know, our our brains and our bodies that our brains and our bodies are not capable of really meeting. And that's why we see burnout. That's why we see all these mental and physical um, like illnesses happening in response to an unsustainable work culture. The same exact thing is happening in beauty. Like our standard of beauty seeks to make a person into a product. It is objectification. It is, um, it is, you know, even like look to Instagram face. We're not trying, we don't even have like beauty idols that are real people anymore. Like our idols are filters and Photoshop and Facetune and AI um, avatars that are created to sort of look like real people. Like our, our goals are completely inhuman and it is placing like a, a burden on our brains and our bodies to try to meet that goal. Um, so yeah, you can draw all of these parallels between, you know, much larger systems and, and beauty and they're related for sure. Yeah. It's so scary to think about. It's just like, sometimes it feels a bit overwhelming as well because, um, Actually, I have two questions, but it's like it's 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 hard because when you choose to to listen to to people such as yourself that are telling you the things that you need to know, it's kind of like a do I have to face? It's like a, it's like a what like a red pill blue pill kind of vibe. Mm, yeah, <laughs> it's interesting because I'll get that feedback a lot, and like people will be very frustrated with mm. my work and the things that I talk about because it's like, well, what are we supposed to do about it? And like. Uh, Unfortunately, I don't have that answer. That's not my (laughs) job. That's not my area of expertise. I can't like, I don't have a blueprint for how we fix beauty culture. The most that I can do is like point to the problems with beauty culture that the average person might not be noticing or seeing and saying, here's what it's actually doing to you. You know, I know beauty culture and the people on TikTok and your favorite influencers and your favorite editors have framed this journey of becoming beautiful as empowerment and autonomy and self-care and confidence. But here's what's really happening according to the data. According to the data, we are experiencing not only physical health issues, you know, more than ever before. um, We are experiencing record rates of appearance-related anxiety, depression, facial dysmorphia, body dysmorphia, disordered eating, obsessive thoughts, self-harm, suicide. That's what beauty culture is doing to Mm us. What do we do about it? I'm sorry. I don't know. I'm not like a fucking economist. I'm not <laughs> like a genius who's who's ready to transform capitalism and, you know, knows how to abolish white supremacy and all of this stuff. All I can do is point out the problems with beauty culture. And then hopefully each individual can take that information and redraw their own lines for when they need to participate or don't feel safe to stop participating and where they can safely divest from a culture that is no exaggeration, killing us. Yeah, no, 100%. I want to um, kind of relate it to what you're saying, but backtracking a little bit. When you're talking about like, why would someone kind of opt into beauty and like often it's in the pursuit of love? Because I know a lot of my friends that if they go out on a date, they'll like put makeup on or they'll change their appearance slightly because of that. How do you navigate 
like what would you say to someone that's like I'm dating that's why I'm doing all these things to my body yeah I would say that makes a lot of sense and you're not like crazy for doing that it can actually be like a logical choice under like the illogical um (laughs) existence you know of of logical systems we're living within um because you know it's true adhering to a strict standard of beauty does come with privileges it does come with benefits it you know studies show that people who adhere to standards of beauty have better outcomes socially financially um in the job market in the legal system all sorts of things so like i understand that and it sucks that this is the world that 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 people have created and this is the world that we're living in um and each individual again has to like sort of draw those lines for themselves the one thing that i can say from my personal experience is I've done dating both ways. I've done dating where I have never let a boyfriend see me without makeup, um, where I've subscribed to all of the beauty ideals and tried my hardest to be as beautiful as I could possibly be and and dated people who were um, into me because of that. And what I found out is that those are not the type of people that I want to be with. I don't want to be with someone who values me for those things. And they may have been like attractive partners in other ways. You know, maybe I was attracted to their, like, for instance, I'm divorced. So my ex-husband, you know, would, would say things like, would you please wear a little bit more makeup? You're so pretty when you wear makeup when I was starting to divest from things or like bought us a Peloton so that I would work out more because I was gaining a little bit of weight. Yeah. Like really, really horrible things. And I tried for so long because I was like, this is the type of person I should be with. He's successful. You know, he makes good money. He, you know, has all of these other qualities that I thought I wanted in a partner. And eventually what I realized was like, those are not qualities that I necessarily want in a partner. Like what I want in a partner is somebody who values me for me and loves me beyond my like physical attributes And so when I started dating post-divorce, I took a completely different, um, I took a completely different route. So I've mostly been on dating apps and my first photo on the app is me with no makeup. It's like a very close up selfie of me with no makeup on. The second picture is me in a giant muumuu, like blowing in the wind. Um, because I love like a flowy garment. Like I'm not going to be someone who's like showing off my body in, in, the things that I wear. And so that's like really helped me like weed out the type of people that I don't want to be in partnership with and find the types of people who I do want to be in partnership with. Because if somebody is swiping on me, like already they're fine with me without makeup and they're fine with me, like not dressing sexy or showing off my body. They don't even know what my body looks like. Um, so that's kind of been like a, a bit of a, like a psychological balm for me going through the dating process is I've, I've set my expectations from the get go. And I, through that, am only attracting partners that I know will not make an issue of my face and body in the future. And that's, you know, what I want. Yeah, of course. I think. So I don't know if that's helpful to most. That's a very personal um, story, but hopefully listeners can can get something out of it. 
Yeah, definitely. I think you just honoring like your own values often attracts people that kind of share those values. And so long as you're not like, you just never want to feel like you're betraying yourself, you know? Yes. It's, it's interesting too, because like, obviously not caring about beauty and not caring about what you look like in, is in some ways its own aesthetic, you know, it'll mm-hmm. signal other things like I'm an intellectual woman. I'm not vapid. I don't care about that kind of thing. So what's happened for me is like, I will, you know, often match with people who like are interested in that. They're like, I don't want someone who cares about beauty. I want someone who's like intellectual. I don't want this like vapid woman. And that becomes a problem because it's like, oh wait, actually my whole career is beauty. I care about beauty quite a bit. So (laughs) there's been that trade-off too, but I'm getting closer to the type of person that I want to be with where they're not attracted to like the typical beauty standard, you know, filtered, photoshopped fillers, Botox Mm. aesthetic, but they're also not looking to like shit on women who like that stuff too, you know? (laughs) So it's, it's very interesting. Yeah, I feel like men that don't shit on women is a good start. I feel like if we start there, it can only get better. <laughs> Shouldn't be so hard. The bar is so low. <laughs> Literally. Um, cool. I want to move on slightly because you talk a lot about like body neutrality rather than body positivity. Why, why do you prioritize neutrality over like po- positivity? I think um, body positivity in certain aspects is wonderful. In many other aspects, though, it's just offering another kind of impossible goal. Um, To me, through the research that I've done, it really isn't much healthier to say you should love your body all of the time. Because the fact is, is like we are still existing within a culture that points out every little imperfection and flaw and tells us to fix it constantly like we are flooded with that and so to sort of individualize the solution and say you have to love your body anyway um, can be sort of its own like psychological um, nightmare to navigate and the other thing about it is that it keeps the focus on the physical being and that is sort of the biggest problem with beauty culture is that like our human brains were not meant to focus so much on our physical bodies. Like we have a lot of other stuff going on. (laughs) And I think this all encompassing um, focus on the physical form has really, um, has really had a lot of negative downstream consequences for us, like physically, but also psychologically and just in terms of our own development. And so oftentimes like a body positive or a skin positive approach still prioritizes the physical body above all else and prioritizes the love of the physical body above all else and really focuses on, you know, fixing the individual rather than addressing the culture. Um, I have found through my research that like a neutral approach is just better for us mentally and emotionally. The goal is not to love this body or hate this body, but just to say like, oh, my body is a body. My face is a face. Like acne is something that happens. Wrinkles are something that happens. You don't have to love them. Your wrinkles don't have to be your fucking battle scars or signs of a life of love and sunshine. Like that shit bothers me just as much as like (laughs) beauty brands that are like, you must erase every wrinkle. Like 
people being like, my wrinkles are a testament to the life I've lived full of like love and longing. Like that's like the same thing, but yeah. opposite too. It's like some people have wrinkles and like they didn't have a life of, you know, love and fun times. <laughs> this is just what happens. This is just a body. This is just a face. And so sort of like detaching our, our ideas of ourselves and our worth, our self-worth and our confidence from sort of like the arbitrary happenings of a face and body, which will just naturally change with time, um, has, has better like psychological and physical outcomes. Yeah, of course. And, you know, there's plenty of instances where people like sometimes their bodies can't do certain things for them. And then there's almost like a pressure to love their body, even though they're incredibly frustrated with their body, you know, and then they feel like a failure because they're like, oh, I have to love it, you know. Exactly. Um, There's a wonderful um, disability advocate that I follow. Her name is Jane Mattingly. And she talks a lot about this concept that she's created of body grief and just like allowing yourself Mm. to grieve your body when it changes or when something happens or it doesn't work the way that it used to work, um, whether due to illness or just aging or or whatever. Um, and to me, that's such a healthy framework. Like you're allowed to grieve your body changing. Like you're allowed to like, you know, feel things about the fact that your physical form is, is changing in ways that like you don't necessarily like or aren't supported by society or whatever. And yeah, I think just like that allowance and that acceptance and letting yourself feel things and sort of moving through it is so much more healthy than being like, I love my body anyway. Cause like, it's a lie. It's a lie for most of us. We, we don't love our bodies anyway. And I just think like the closer we can be to like telling the truth, the healthier we will be as a society. Yeah, hundred um, percent. Okay, I'm going to pivot slightly again because um, when I was telling some of my friends that I was speaking to you, one of them was like, "Yeah, but I want to use moisturizer. Like, I have really dry skin. I want to use moisturizer. How can she be so anti-product?" So, what do you say when people yeah. are like, "These help me"? Yeah, I mean, I would say that people who have that sort of reaction to me, like probably aren't very familiar with my work. They're probably familiar with like, sort of like the controversial headlines that have been out there. Um, because like my goal is not for us to just have like dry, sick, unprotected skin all of the time because (laughs) giving into capitalism and products. Like my goal is for us to support our skin and our bodies and ourselves in many ways and to challenge an industry that only offers product-based solutions. So the first thing that I would say to somebody like that is that like, if your skin is dry, that's a sign. Like this is, this is how the skin works. This is the evolutionary like purpose of the skin. The skin is the only way that your body can visually communicate with you about what's going inside its environment or outside its environment. So like dry skin can signal all sorts of things. And like, you're supposed to look at that and say, Hmm, my skin is like a little bit flakier than normal. What's happening and how can I support my body? Because it's asking for more hydration. You know, like dry skin is a thing that happens. 
it'll even out eventually in a lot of cases, but sometimes it's a cue to look for something deeper. So that can be all sorts of things that don't require a product. That could be, I actually need to be drinking more water. It could be, I need to be getting more electrolytes and minerals in my body to give my cells the materials they need. it needs to like hold on to the water. <laughs> because if you're drinking a ton of water and you're still parched, like that's probably a sign your body is missing the minerals that like attach to H2O particles and hold them into the cell. Um, it could be, I'm over exfoliating. Dead skin cells are actually the only cells on the um, on the skin that can ho- hold hydration. So when beauty brands are telling us like it absorbs, you know, the moisture into your skin and holds it there, the only cells that are capable of that are dead skin cells. Um, they're called corneocytes. They hold things called natural moisturizing factors (NMFs). So if your skin is really dry and flaky and it's not holding on to moisture, it might be because you've overdone it on the exfoliation. And, and in that case, removing a product will actually help um, because you need a layer of dead skin cells. That's why dead skin cells exist. You need that layer in order to hold on to hydration. Um, the other thing I would say is that there are a lot of studies that show over moisturizing impedes your skin's ability to moisturize itself. And so by constantly putting on moisturizer, you're actually drying your na- your skin out naturally because you're sending a signal like you don't have to produce this much moisture. You don't have to produce this much oil to hold in the moisture because something else is taking care of that. So like in all of these instances, it's actually taking away a product that will help. Um, Or it could be like, I'm not getting enough um, fatty acids and fats in my diet. Like the skin barrier that holds in your moisturizer, that's made up of oils, fats, omega-3 fatty acids. And this is one way like diet culture intersects with beauty culture because we're taught to restrict. And then our body like literally doesn't have the fats it needs to hold on to moisture and we dry out. And so in that case, like adding fats and vitamin E to your diet will actually help your skin because your skin will finally have the materials it needs. Again, none of these require a product. And then there are instances where like, yeah, a topical product might be necessary. I use a moisturizer almost every day. I don't use a typical moisturizer, but like my skin, um, because I was on Accutane for a long time, which like in, uh, impeded my sebaceous glands ability to produce enough sebum. It's just chronically dry. No matter how much water I have, no matter how many omega threes I have, I have dry skin. So I put jojoba oil on every day onto damp skin. Jojoba oil is like a 97% chemical match to human sebum. It acts as a moisturizer. Moisturizer is just water and oil together. When you apply an oil to damp skin, DIY moisturizer. So like I use topical products. So when people are like, she doesn't like products. It's like, I don't like the industry that only sells us products when there are so many more solutions available to us. And like, sometimes there's not another solution. And in that case, Use a product. Sure. Do your thing. But like, let's open our minds a little bit. Yeah, no, I agree. Because I feel like we've almost never learned how to look at our bodies for cues. It's always just been product first. And to your second point as well, like I see a lot of, maybe it's just like, I I don't know if I'm like the core core side of TikTok. I don't know if you know what core core is. (laughs) Yeah. I kind of fiber it's like people like really heralding like rosemary oil that they just make it they just make themselves you know they just boil a bit of rosemary and they keep the oil and they're like this is all you need guys this is literally all you need (laughs) yeah I mean that's interesting too Mm -hmm. because in some instances like I don't necessarily disagree with it there's a lot that we can do with 
plants and plant-based skincare. There's also just like a lot of um, harmful DIYs going around from people who like haven't really researched this Mm -hmm. deeply. And, you know, I think also the big problem is that most people who are interested in skincare know a ton about skincare products and know very little about the skin itself. This was me. When I started learning about the science of the skin itself, after being entrenched in the beauty industry as a consumer and a writer for so long, my mind was fucking blown. I had no idea how the body actually worked, how the skin actually worked. And that is what changed my approach to skincare more than anything I could learn about, you know, a bottle of hyaluronic acid or a DIY rosemary oil, like, because that is focusing on the science of the external. When you prioritize the science of like you, of a person rather than a product, like another person versus product thing, when you prioritize the science of people versus the science of the products, you get a whole other outcome. And it doesn't necessarily demonize all external products. It just gives you a better idea of when they're necessary and when they're just like a bunch of bullshit handed to you on a platter by the beauty industry. Yeah. I mean, gosh, what a note to end on. <laughs> that, was, that was incredible. Um, I have so much to digest, but I have one final question for you, um, which is what impression would you like to leave on the world? Oh, gosh, that's a really great question. I think the impression that I would like to leave on the world is not one of being anti-beauty, but of being pro-beauty and of helping people understand what is actual beauty. And when I talk about actual beauty, I mean, like, I think of it being up there with beauty, freedom, truth, love, this inherent human longing, this thing that is necessary to our lives. And I think I'd like to leave the impression of helping people understand the difference between that and industrialized product-centric beauty culture bullshit that has been sold to Mm -hmm. us. Um, and help people live more like authentically beautiful, fulfilling lives free from the pressures of beauty culture. I mean, I, I think you're doing a phenomenal job. I read your um, piece about hands. Look at, oh, look at, look at my nails right now. <laughs> Cause I was like, I'm not going back to the salon. <laughs> yes, ugly hands unite. <laughs> Um, Jessica thank you so much if um, anyone what like where can people find you if they want to to read your stuff yes Um, so the only way to find my work right now is through my newsletter it's called the unpublishable you can just google the unpublishable or the url is jessicadefino.substack.com and you can subscribe for free there is like a paid tier if you want extra but 80% of my articles are completely free Perfect. Thank you so, so much. Thank you. Thank you so much again to Jessica for chatting with me. I really enjoyed our conversation. If you enjoyed it too, please make sure you subscribe or recommend us to a friend. And you can find a lot more interesting conversations under Impressionable, which is will be where you're listening to this now. Um, I hope you have a lovely week. And yeah, I'll be back with you soon enough with another great episode. Have a lovely time. Bye.